am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. We come before God. God of life and love, your Son made himself known to his disciples in the breaking of bread. Open the eyes of our faith that we may see him in his redeeming work, who is alive and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Well, welcome to Worship from Creef. Today we are online only, and we find ourselves at the penultimate stage of our journey from Christmas to the cross. Now, you might think it rather strange that we are still talking of the cross in these days after Easter, but the cross by which we mean Jesus' death is of central importance in the New Testament, and so also in the life and the witness of the church. It's because of the cross, Jesus' death, that everyone from the least person to the greatest person in the land can have hope, not just for this earthly life, but also for the ongoing embrace of love from the eternal God, when, as the prophet Isaiah promises, every tear will be wiped from every eye, and where we will find ourselves in a place specially prepared for those who love the Lord Jesus where we might be reunited with all those others who also love him. Last Sunday, our focus was on the meaning of the cross, and today we seek to gain an insider's view of what was happening on the cross, and we do that through the eyes of Jesus himself. And just as we have time-shifted events earlier in this series of sermons, so today, having witnessed the death and the resurrection and examined some of the resurrection appearances, we now take a step back to hear Jesus speaking seven short sentences, but significant sentences, from the cross, which, taken together, throw light on what was going on there. To hear these words, we need to refer to all four Gospels, for no one of the evangelists records all seven sayings. Matthew and Mark preserve only one, Jesus' cry of dereliction, while of the remaining six, Luke records three and John the other three. These so-called seven words from the cross disclose to us otherwise unknown thoughts of Jesus. And what is remarkable, given their timing, is that none of them were uttered in bitterness or in complaint. Rather, as we'll see, each is an expression either of Jesus' great love for us or of his dreadful work of sin-bearing for us or his final triumph and victory. Before we turn to God's Word then, let's sing our first song of praise. It is a thing most wonderful.
Let us pray. It is indeed a thing most wonderful. Loving God, we praise you that you came to us in Christ, walking our earth and sharing our humanity. And you did it out of love, and for the wonder of your love, we indeed praise you. We praise you for the inspiration you gave us through him, the knowledge that he experienced temptation just as we do, and yet refused to compromise, staying true to his chosen path despite the awful cost. For the wonder of your love, we praise you. We praise you for the revelation of your purpose in Jesus. Everything we see of you through his earthly ministry. We remember how he taught the multitudes, how he instructed his disciples, how he interpreted the law, how he healed the sick, responded to the needy, and cared for the poor, how he confronted injustice challenged oppression, and overcame evil. All this done in love, and for the wonder of your love, we praise you. We praise you for the supreme demonstration of your grace at Calvary, the fact that you were willing to identify yourself with us not only in life, but also in death, enduring the agony of the crucifixion the awful burden of our sinfulness. For the wonder of your love, we praise you. Loving God, we come in this Easter season to recall your goodness, to marvel at your grace, and to commit ourselves to your service. For the wonder of your love, we praise you through Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose words we pray together. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. If the cross is of central importance in the New Testament, and so in the life and in the witness of the church, then these seven words, seven sentences Jesus spoke from the cross are important for us to examine. The first three words from the cross portray Jesus as an example to us, for they express the love that Jesus showed to others. You might remember that on his final journey out of the city of Jerusalem to Golgotha, carrying his cross, then Simon carrying it for him, 
Jesus went on ahead and a large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. We've all heard that kind of guttural wailing. We hear it all too frequently when yet another young black man is killed on the streets of America and his family wail mourning his, his loss. Or when a youngster dies of a senseless knife crime in one of our own inner cities. And we do it ourselves in the worst moments of personal loss. And yet Jesus said to these women, do not weep for me. Nor did he dwell in self-pity or in his own pain or loneliness or on the gross injustice that was being done to him. Now, what is amazing is that Jesus, at his most desperate moment, had no thought for himself, but his thoughts were for others. He had nothing left to give away. Even his clothes had been taken from him but he was still able to give people his love. I'm constantly struck by how the cross is the epitome of Jesus' self-giving. As Jesus showed his concern for the men who crucified him, for the mother who bore him, for the penitent thief who was dying at his side on another cross, his first word was his prayer for the forgiveness of his executioners. Just think how remarkable this was. His physical and his emotional sufferings had already been almost intolerable. And now he had been stripped and laid on his back and the rough hands of soldiers had wielded their heavy hammers, driving nails through flesh and bone. Surely now he will think of himself. Surely now he will complain to God like Job or plead with God to avenge him and exhibit a little self-pity. But no, Jesus thinks only of others. A couple of weeks ago, we were working in the man's garden, and I stood on a, a plank of wood with a nail protruding from it, and I instantly hopped around, yelping in pain. So I am sure that Jesus, already flogged to an inch of his life, brutalized by the soldiers, must have cried out in pain. But his first coherent word is a prayer for his enemies. Either side of him and other crosses were two criminals who began to curse and swear, but not Jesus. Now, what we see in Jesus hanging at that moment of crucifixion is that he is practicing what he had preached in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. For whom then was he praying as he was being crucified? 
just as Jesus had wept over the rebellious city of Jerusalem as he rode that donkey down from the Mount of Olives into the city, I think there can be no doubt that Jesus' prayer was for the Jewish leaders and for the the people of Jerusalem who had rejected their Messiah. And what a powerful prayer. For in answer, they were granted a 40-year reprieve during which hundreds, thousands of people repented and believed in Jesus Christ. Only in the year AD 70 did the judgment of God finally fall on the nation and the city of Jerusalem was taken and its temple destroyed. Jesus' second word from the cross comes as a word of salvation to a criminal. He said to the penitent thief, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. All four of the evangelists tell us that there were three crosses erected at Golgotha, the place called the skull. And on that fateful morning, they make it clear that Jesus was in the middle cross, while two robbers, or as Luke puts it, two criminals were crucified either side of him. Just as a school bully often picks on the most innocent child in the class, at first both thieves, both criminals join in the chorus of hate to which Jesus was now being subjected even on the cross. But after a while only one of them continued hurling insults at Jesus and challenging him to save himself and them. For some reason, the other criminal, the other thief, stopped his abuse. And turning to the thief on Jesus' other side, he cried out, Don't you fear God? Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then turning back to Jesus, the penitent robber said, Jesus, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. This ascription of kingship to Jesus is remarkable indeed. No doubt this man had heard the priests mocking Jesus, claim to be the king of Israel. Perhaps he had been able to turn and see the inscription on the cross beside him, over Jesus' head, which read, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And certainly he had seen Jesus' quiet, regal dignity. Hanging there on the cross, dying the most painful of deaths, this man had come to believe that Jesus was indeed a king. And he'd also heard Jesus' prayer for the forgiveness of his executioners and his accusers. And forgiveness is what he knew he needed right at that moment, since he confessed that he was being punished justly. To his cry to be remembered, Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. There were no recriminations. 
This man was not reproached that he repented only at the eleventh hour. There was no doubt cast on the genuineness of his repentance. Jesus simply gave this penitent believer the assurance that he longed for. He promised him not only entry into paradise, involving the joy of Christ's presence, but an immediate entry that very day. And Jesus assured him of these things with his, I tell you the truth. It was the last time he used that formula of words. What a remarkable hope that must have been given to this penitent thief during these long hours of pain that followed. Even as he hung on his cross dying, his heart and his mind were filled with the sure and saving promise of Jesus. That same sure and saving promise is offered to each man, woman, and child who hears the gospel message. And all we have to do is receive it as God's free gift to us. Of course, if we reject that gift, then we already stand condemned. And like the other thief on the cross, we die and we spend all eternity separated from the love of God. But the good news of the gospel is that if we hear Jesus' promise and respond, knowing it to be true, then nothing can separate us from the love of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not die but have everlasting life. The third example of Jesus came in his commendation of his own mother. Jesus said to his mother, dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, whom we believe was John, here is your mother. Our experience of physical pain is that while it sometimes never goes away, its intensity can come upon us in waves. At least that's my experience. And so in a very small way, I can identify with Jesus on the cross. Perhaps he closed his eyes when the wave of pain hit a peak, opening them, opening them again when the pain subsided a little bit. In one of these moments, Jesus looked down from the cross and saw this little group of faithful women and the apostle John, the disciple whom he loved. And then through the tears and the blood that were no doubt covering his eyes, he saw his mother. And she was, of course, very precious to him from a human point of view. Although she had not always understood him, and once or twice he'd had to speak firmly to her when she stood in the way of his doing his father's will. Nevertheless, she was his mother. 
he had been conceived in her womb by the supernatural operation of the Holy Spirit. She had given birth to him in the stable. She had laid him in a manger. She had fed him as a baby at her breast. She had cared for him throughout his childhood. It would have been Mary who was at home teaching him the biblical stories of the patriarchs and the kings and the prophets and the plan and purposes of God. And she'd also, in all these years, set him a radiant example of godliness. So it's hard to imagine the utter depths of her despair as she looked up at the cross and saw him suffering there. Here, before her eyes, was the prophecy of Simeon come true, spoken when Jesus was just a few days old, that a sword would pierce her own soul. Scholars tell us that a bit like making a will, a crucified man had, even from the cross, the right to issue a final instruction. And looking down and determined to save Mary, spare her from seeing him die, Jesus used the terminology of family law to put Mary under John's protection and his care and to put John under hers. And the effect was that immediately John took Mary away from the cross to his place of residence in Jerusalem. A final act of love. In these three words from the cross, what grips me is the absolute and total unselfishness of Jesus. In spite of the great pain and the utter degradation and shame he was experiencing, he prayed for the forgiveness of his enemies. He promised paradise to a repentant thief, and he provided for his bereaved mother. This is love. And in his letter to the Ephesians, the Apostle Paul challenges each one of us, live a life of love just as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us. We sing again, when I survey the wondrous cross.
Well, if the first three words from that wondrous cross were spoken as an example given by Jesus, then the next two words of the cross portray Jesus as our sin-bearer. We're told in the Gospels that the crucifixion took place at the third hour, according to the Roman method of timekeeping. That's about 9 a.m. our time. And the first three words must have been spoken around the time of crucifixion. After that, there was silence from Jesus until the sixth hour, what we would call 12 noon. At that time when the sun was at its highest point in the sky, a strange darkness came over the city of Jerusalem. Now, I've heard some people suggest that it was an eclipse, but the alignment of the earth, the moon, and the sun just don't allow for that kind of natural phenomenon because the Passover, we know, took place at the full moon. This was no natural event. Rather, a supernatural phenomenon was occurring, intended by God to symbolize the absolute horror of great darkness into which the soul of Jesus now plunged. And that darkness lasted for three hours as Jesus hung on the cross, bearing our sins in silence. And then at the ninth hour, about 3 p.m., Jesus broke his silence and spoke four words from the cross in somewhat rapid succession, beginning with the terrible cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Recorded in their Gospels by Matthew and Mark in the original Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, Lama, Sabachthani. Heaping more insults on Jesus, some of the bystanders round the cross jested, he's calling Elijah. Though none of them could have been so ignorant of Aramaic at that time that they made that mistake. There's complete agreement that Jesus was quoting from the Psalms, what we have as Psalm 22, verse 1. But why, why did he consider himself forsaken? Quite simply, the situation on the cross was of God the Son being forsaken by God the Father. And the reason was due to your sin and my sin and their just reward. The Apostle Paul would later write, the wages of sin is death. Such was his understanding of the clarity of Scripture on the matter. And here, Jesus quoted the only Scripture that foretold what was happening and that he had perfectly fulfilled. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here was the awful consequence of the fall, the deliberate rebellion of humanity against God, which we first encountered back in Genesis chapter 3. And that journey from creation to Christ takes us from Christmas straight to the cross. 
and the moment of dereliction. Having at the start of the process of crucifixion refused the numbing concoction of wine mixed with gall, hours later, knowing that the end was getting near, Jesus said, I am thirsty. This is the only word from the cross that expresses Jesus' physical pain. And again, even now, Jesus spoke in fulfillment of Scripture. His thirst, yes, it was literal, but if the death of his body was to symbolize his spiritual death, then the expression of thirst was also symbolic of the torment of separation from God. Darkness, death, thirst. These are how the Bible describes hell, the outer darkness, the second death, the lake of fire. And this is the horror that Jesus suffered for us on the cross. Jesus thirsted on the cross that you and I might never thirst again. If anyone is thirsty, he said, let them come to me and drink. The final two cries from the cross show Jesus appearing as victor, for they express the victory he has won for us. In a shout, proclaiming a resounding victory, Jesus cried out, It is finished! And these are perhaps the most momentous words ever spoken. It's an achievement with lasting results. It has been and remains forever accomplished. Because Jesus has finished the work of sin-bearing, there is nothing left for us to do or even contribute. And to illustrate what Christ had achieved. In the temple in Jerusalem, the, the, the veil, the curtain that separated the two holy places was torn from top to bottom in order to show that God had done it. That curtain, that veil had hung for centuries between the inner and the outer sanctuaries of the temple, showing that the holy God was inaccessible to sinners except once a year by the high priest on the Day of Atonement. But now this curtain was no longer needed, torn by God, for another better sacrifice had been made by which worshippers in the temple courts and all over the world could draw near to God. And Jesus' final word is a word of surrender. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. It's challenging when we read in the Gospels to see that none of the evangelists say to us that Jesus died for death did not claim Jesus as its victim. 
Rather, Jesus seized that moment as victory. He seized death as victor. The entire initiative in the process of dying is in Jesus' own hands. Mark in his gospel says Jesus breathed his last. Matthew tells us that he gave up his spirit. Luke records his words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And John's expression is the most striking, namely that he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. There was to be no gasping for breath in a final battle with death. The initiative was Jesus. You see, previously Jesus had been handed over again and again and again, but now Jesus handed over his own spirit to the Father and his body to death. The bowing of his head was his final act of surrender to the will of God his Father. Jesus could have escaped death right up to the last minute. As he said in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was being betrayed, he could have summoned more than 12 legions of angels to come and rescue him. He could have come down from the cross as his mockers challenged him to do, but he did not. Of his own free will and deliberate choice, Jesus gave himself up to death. It was Jesus who determined the time, the place, and the manner of his departure. And the last words from the cross proclaim Jesus as the conqueror of sin and death itself. And in response, you and I, we must come humbly to the cross, deserving nothing but judgment, pleading nothing but mercy. And Christ will deliver us from both the guilt of sin and from the fear of death. How amazing. We sing, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene.
Next Sunday is the start of a week when the moderator of the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland visits our presbytery, the Presbytery of Perth. And normally during these visits there would be gatherings in different places across a presbytery to share the local life and the mission of the church as well as services of worship in different places. We'd hoped that he may have been able, Martin may have been able to come here to Creef, but Sadly, most of the visit now has to be online, but there will be special services that we have the opportunity to tune in to and participate in, as well as, I think, perhaps some opportunities during the week to have uh, meetings with Martin. So I hope that you'll tune in again next week for the service led by the moderator here in our own presbytery and perhaps see some of the local work that's going on here in this part of Scotland. Until then, may you know the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, to be with you this day and to remain with you forevermore. Amen.